Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together, other than watching movies, of course. I am happy to report that the latest issue of Movie John has been sent to the printer and will begin to be sent out to our devoted readers within the next couple of weeks. For those new to this delightfully spooky program, Movie John is a print publication and film review website that I co-run with my film pals. Each quarter, we create an actual print zine. That's right, something that you can physically hold, dear listeners, and it includes artwork, writings, and the occasional game or puzzle focusing on a particular theme. In the latest issue, we feature films that are set at the circus, carnival, or fun fair. Step right up and witness the grandest show by picking up the latest copy of Movie John from moviejohn.com shop. And now our feature presentation. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Today I shall be prying open the coffin of a particular corpse that frankly has only just fallen on my radar this year. After watching the 1953 film House of Wax, I was introduced, of course, to Wax, but also to the dignified raconteur, art collector, and connoisseur of cuisine, the Midwest's own, man about town, Vincent Price. (laughs) Another lovely day begins. and you will find that you've arrived in Frankenstein. Perhaps the Count will find a way to make his monster work today. For if he solves this monster mania, he can return to Transylvania. So welcome where the sun won't shine to the castle of Count That audio you just heard was from the intro of a Canadian children's TV series, Hilarious House of Frankenstein. The program ran for a total of nine months in 1971, and they managed to produce 130 episodes 
all of which Vincent was a part of. I uncovered this show thanks to my fellow classic coroner and film pal, Canadian Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, who we shall be hearing from in just a little bit. So hold tight, fellow crypt dwellers. Born May 21st, 1911, Vincent Price began acting in 1938 and before his death from lung cancer on October 25th, 1993, a week before Halloween, he managed to rack up 211 film and TV credits. In today's episode, we will be dissecting his flick from 1959 entitled The Bat. Come in. Come closer. Closer. That's right. I'm Vincent Price. You'll be just as safe in this house of fear as any of the other five victims murdered by the bat. In all of the annals of mystery, there's never been a more elusive, fearsome, and cunning killer. He'll lure you through hidden passages to make you his next victim. But nobody lives forever, so why be afraid of the bat? Vincent was often known for playing roles in horror films in which a character had wronged him, and he was out for revenge. He is remembered for many of his villainous roles, his campy performances, and unsettling laughter. Something I learned as I was digging up this particular corpse is that he also was an avid gourmet chef and wrote several cookbooks and would even prepare meals for many of his co-stars on set. I shall be looking for one of his cookbooks when I plan my next dinner party, Goblins and Ghouls. Many saw Vincent as a true gentleman, a bit eccentric of corpse, as he often spoke with over-the-top mannerisms when discussing some of his favorite hobbies. He also seemed like a bit of a wild man, as he was said to often attend movies he starred in, in costume of corpse, and would play pranks on the moviegoers. I find this to be incredibly rad, but also just, wow. It must have been hard for him to hide, being that he was six foot four inches in height, and often this would come up as an issue for him in finding roles, as producers did not want to cast an actor that would be taller than their leading man. I mean, imagine Vincent being aside Tom Cruise. Mwah. What may come as a surprise to you, my fellow crypt dwellers, is that my introduction to Vincent Price did not come from his legacy in the horror film genre. Instead, I first crossed paths with the dear Mr. Price in noir films such as Laura, Leave Her to Heaven, and Shock. Vincent truly was a versatile actor, as I feel in any role he was given, he took it extremely seriously and really was able to flip back and forth between genres. I had always meant to watch The Bat, especially after I adored the 1940 film The Devil Bat so much. And in case you don't recall, this film was featured as the very first episode here on Cinematic Crypt. It stars one of my favorite corpses, Bela Lugosi. There is something about vampire bats. I find them to be such sweet little creatures, don't you? There's no doubt that if a bat is involved, 
I'm going to watch the film. As for the 1959 The Bat, it does not disappoint. Directed by Crane Wilbur, the movie stars Agnes Moorhead as Cornelia Van Gorder, a mystery writer that decides to rent and take residence at Oak's Mansion for the summer, an isolated place of sorts with hauntingly spooky vibes, which is just the perfect place to set the mood for her next book. We learn from a magazine article that there is a killer on the loose known as the Bat, which shall make for an exciting summer for Miss Cornelia. Vincent Price plays Dr. Malcolm Wells, who happens to be on a hunting trip with his pal, John Fleming, president of the local bank. Also, property owner of the Oaks Mansion that Cornelia is staying at. While on this hunting expedition, Fleming admits to Dr. Wells that he has stolen money from the bank and makes him an offer to split his newfound treasure as long as the doctor agrees to help him carry out the rest of his fiendish plan by assisting him with faking his own death. Doctor. Yes, John. What would you do for half a million? Anything short of murder. Why not murder? Too messy. Where's the million? In my family's tomb in Zenith, in the crypt with my father's casket. I don't buy that, John. No? No. You forget that I had you in charge when you were a very sick man, when you raved in delirium. And I heard you talk about a hidden room. Now, where else could you put a hidden room except in that mansion you built, that uh, white elephant you call the Oaks? Look, everyone knows I have a bad heart. Now, who would doubt it if you wired the bank directors that my heart had failed, that I had fallen from a great height here in the woods, and that I was badly smashed up? You could uh, ship the body back for burial and uh, instruct them not to open the casket due to the condition of its contents. Well, you realize, of course, that uh, we'd have to have a body to put in that casket, which means that we'd have to deal with an undertaker at this end. Of course. Dr. Wells is resistant to this plan. I suppose this is not a typical conversation held over a coffee meetup for most people. Death, coffins, and corpses. I mean, how sad that you don't want to discuss these things, right? Personally, I struggle with Dr. Wells' point of view. I often have to remember, I guess it's not completely normy to approach a pal and discuss about plans of their own demise. Regardless, Fleming's plan, well, let's just say he didn't see this one coming. A forest fire breaks out nearby, and Dr. Wells decides to take advantage of this surprise disaster. Admits the chaos, he shoots his friend Fleming and uses the fire to cover up the murder. You mean you'd kill me? What else could I do? Now that I've told you about the million, I'd say you were shot in a hunting accident. I'll look, doctor. If you can find another body instead of Sam's, it's all right with me. There's half a million in it for you. I'll do my best. I smell smoke. So do I. What's that noise? 
Look, Doctor. The woods are on fire. It's coming this way. We've got to get out of here. Out the back way. We will. As soon as I provide that body we were talking about. Meanwhile, back in town, the bat is on the loose. Let's talk about the bat for a moment, shall we? I absolutely loved his ensemble, his getup, so to speak, all in black, literally, from head to toe, velvet gloves adorned with steel claws, a luxurious turtleneck, a face mask to hide his identity, and even a black pork pie or possibly fedora-style hat. Simply put, this bat is class. I also love the way in which the bat himself is filmed throughout the picture. It reminded me of the way Nosferatu was portrayed, another former episode of the show. Shadows of the bat on the wall, the claws appear even more frightening as they are elongated. Ooh, I love it. The bat has been menacing the town for quite some time, in particular, women in which he is said to attack at night by ripping out their throats with his steel claws. Cornelia's maid, Lizzie, informs her that there is a reason most of the servants have quit. Cornelia had tried to bring much of her house staff to stay with her for the summer, but none of them wanted to have an encounter with the bat. The bat is faceless. The bat leaves no fingerprints. trying to do drive people away from this part of the country why what does it say about the bat specialty seems to be killing women my goodness two of them in one night all his victims died the same way like their throats had been ripped open with steel claws that's a charming little caper i'll have to try it sometime in a book. That ain't nothing, just something bumping against the house. Listen to this. One of his victims who lived for a moment after she was found described the bat as a man without a face. Honest, Miss Corny, I think that woman must have been exaggerating. It does not take long for the bat to visit Cornelia and Lizzie. They first encounter him as they are locking up the house for the night. Lizzie witnesses the bat's menacing claws reaching through an unlocked door. Cornelia immediately calls the police, who tell her they will send someone over to investigate. Here, there is a wonderful use of fog as the police search for the bat unable to find him anywhere on the grounds. I found it kind of funny how much of a scaredy-cat Cornelia was, being that she's a mystery writer and all. However, as the plot continues, she becomes more comfortable with the situation at hand, ready to face her fears. Lizzie, on the other hand, never stops screaming. One scene in particular, when she is her most shrill, is when the bat manages to break into the house and releases an actual bat into their home that inevitably bites Lizzie. Fearful that the bat may have carried rabies, they contact the great Dr. Wells to provide treatment 
scratch the nibble. Dr. Wells? Are you there, Dr. Wells? Are you there, Dr. Wells? This is the operator. Your call service is on the wire. It's an emergency. This is Dr. Wells. This is your call service, Doctor. Oh, hello. I, I was just doing an experiment. I left the receiver off. That's what I thought, but I kept trying. Miss Van Gorder at the Oaks called and said that her maid had been bitten by a bat, and she's afraid it might be rabbit. What? Oh, all right. Uh, tell her I'll be right over there. While Dr. Wells steps out to assist Lizzie and Cornelia, the police detective... Lieutenant Andy Anderson, what a name, played by Gavin Gordon, whom we had met earlier as he was the one that searched the mansion for the ladies, enters the lab of the great doctor and begins to search through his things. One of my favorite moments from this scene is the unveiling of a beautiful, electrifying bat light. I will post a picture for you to behold this sight yourself on the cinematic crypt page. This now leads me to another favorite moment of mine from the film and solidified my commitment to uncovering more Vincent Price flicks. When Dr. Wells arrives to assist Lizzie with her bat bite, not only does he tend to her wound, but he also catches the bat. The bat is absolutely precious, and he tucks it into his medical bag for safekeeping. Who's there? Dr. Wells. Come in. Good evening. So glad they found you, Doctor. Well, I reached my office shortly after you called. How is your maid? Is she in any pain? No, no, she doesn't seem to be. Did the bat get away? No, I, I believe it's still in my bedroom. Oh, good. I want to examine it. Now, there you go, Miss Allen. Now you'll feel better. Doctor, have I got the rabies? Well, I can tell you better after I've examined the bat's brain under a microscope. That thing's got a brain? Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, where is it? I think the little darling is in that closet. Oh. Meanwhile, Mr. Anderson arrives shortly, just as the doctor is leaving, and informs the ladies that an officer will watch over the mansion for the evening so they can rest easy. The next day, Cornelia is paid a visit by Dr. Wells and a couple of ladies, Dale Bailey, whose husband worked at the bank in which the money was stolen and is now a suspect for the theft. And then there is Judy. Judy, Judy, Judy. She works at the same bank and is supposed to be serving as a witness for her husband's defense. All while Detective Anderson is visiting the nephew of the late bank president, Mr. Fleming. Obviously, much coffee and or tea is had throughout these scenes, possibly even cookies, if I recall correctly. During the detective's visit, he learns of possible blueprints to the old mansion that Cornelia is staying at. There is a theory that the missing bank money is hidden in an old family tomb, which could obviously solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. Now, if I was writing this, instead of living in the middle of it, I'd hide it right here in this spooky old house. Under a loose floorboard or up a chimney? <laughs> If Mr. Fleming had the nerve to steal a million, he'd make his plans well in advance. 
I'd say he'd prepare a place to hide it. Possibly when this house was being built. Now, I rented this place for Mark Fleming, his nephew. I wonder... I wonder if he'd have the floor plans. I'll ask him. While Cornelia is entertaining the ladies over dinner, she decides to hire Dale as a personal secretary to help her write the fantastic story of the bat. While they are feasting, the nephew sneaks into the house to look for the blueprints. Unfortunately, he does not get too far as the bat strikes again, killing him and taking the blueprints for himself. The ladies discover the body, which causes quite a tizzy. clock hasn't struck the hour in the last ten years, if I'm to believe what Mark Fleming told me. Why is it angled away from the wall like that? I don't know. Somebody must have moved it. Busy very likely when she was dusting. Wait a minute. Did you know there's a door in this paneling? No, no, I didn't. Oh, my gracious, so there is. Maybe it opens to a secret passage. Oh, certainly to a secret something. Who knows, girls? We'll be about to stumble on that missing minion. Oh, there's a panel. There must be some gimmick to it. There always is. Yes, it moves. It moves. Calling car 11. Calling car 11. Proceed to the Oaks and Zenith Township immediately. A homicide has been reported. Okay. Proceeding to the Oaks. Notify the county coroner, Dr. Wells. Tell him to come to the Oaks at once. Speaking of coroner, it is now time to take our trip to the morgue, my little crypt dwellers. Join me for this spooky intermission of sorts as we venture to the morgue to chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Agnes Moorhead, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark to get ourselves a corpse. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. Who have you dug up for tonight's corpse chat? Well, my friend, we have another delightful specimen on the docket this evening. The enchanting cadaver, Agnes Moorhead. Oh, here she is. Uh, my wife, Miss Van Gorder, Miss Allen. How do you do, Miss How Bailey? do you do? Cornelia Van Gorder. Yes. Oh, well, I've read every murder mystery you've ever written. I just adored that weird one, The Private Morgue of Dr. X even though it gave me the shivers. <laughs> Only the shivers? Scared hell out of me. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I, I really mean that uh, Miss Corny killed them off in that one. When you refer to my books, please don't call me Miss Corny. Oh, I did love her as Endora on Bewitched. I did read that she really didn't care for that role when she played Samantha's flashy mother. And Agnes had found witchcraft to be a lot of fooey, basically stating that it was flim flam. 
Apparently, she only took the job because she was friends with Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha, and they had bumped into one another at a department store. So Elizabeth like convinced her to be part of the cast. Agnes thought it wouldn't last more than one season, and it ended up being a huge hit. Did you ever watch the show? Because I was really into it for a period of time. Yeah, so when I was a child and my family would vacation in the USA, I used to catch Nick at Night with my mom every night. We didn't have Nickelodeon in Canada. Maybe it was available, I'm not sure, but we didn't have it. So to me, it's like a really good memory of catching these uh, catching these older shows. I, I remember I really loved the theme song and Andorra was, she was just absolutely fabulous. And she made me laugh because I just loved how she would always be such a pill to Darren <laughs> because he was extremely no. Yeah, and I know that there were several actors that played Darren, but I never liked that character. Because I hated that he was always telling Samantha not to use her witchcraft. Silly. Yeah, it's really silly. I haven't actually gotten up to the seasons where they have children, but I believe the children had powers too. I think so. So I feel like Darren was just always a stick in the mud. Agnes, you know, she did try to keep her time spent on Bewitched very limited, from what I understand. So essentially, when she had her contract written up, she limited her appearances to only eight episodes each season, which back then, TV shows had a lot more episodes because they tended to air weekly. Mm -hmm. So I found that kind of interesting. And apparently she had to get to the set like so early like at like four in the morning because they had to apply her makeup which yes the makeup is to your point she always looked fabulous Mm -hmm. i can't believe it would take that long to do (laughs) but apparently it did and then they would film till like eight at night so that just seems like an incredibly long day to me Mm Of course, you know, this is the show then and the role that everyone remembers her for, which is so crazy to me because she was nominated for four Oscars. And one of the nominations was from an Orson Welles picture, The Magnificent Ambersons. And I know that you love Orson. Mm -hmm. Which flicks of his that feature her do you enjoy the most? Well, yeah, I do love when she portrayed the mother to my close personal friend, Charles Foster Kane, in Citizen Kane. It was great, it was a small role, but she did exactly what she needed to in the part. But I recently watched The Magnificent Ambersons, which was kind of a, a, a blind spot on my quest to watch all of Orson's movies. Her performance in that is stunning. Have you seen that one? I still haven't, and I'm so embarrassed to say this because the last Criterion sale, I had picked Mm -hmm. up the disc. We have it, we just haven't watched it yet. And even my mom, (laughs) who I say it like that because she hasn't watched like a ton of films, 
but she has watched that one and she even has been like saying to me you need to watch it so i should definitely move it up in our queue yeah well i mean don't feel bad there's so many movies out there i just watched it too but you should check it out because i have stuck in my head for instance this one scene in particular where she has just a total breakdown with this character, George. It's not doing either of us any good going on arguing this way. That place you but picked up. But this boarding up. house is practical. And we could be together. How? On $8 a week, I'm only going to be getting $8 a week at the law office. You'd be paying more of the expenses than I would. I'd be paying. I'd be paying. Certainly you would. We'd be using more of your money than mine. My money? <laughs> I've got $28. That's all. $28? That's all. I know I told Jack I didn't put everything in the headlight company, but I did. And she's in front of a furnace. That plays into the the role. I won't spoil it for you, but okay. it's it's unforgettable. And so in that movie, like she, as I said, she played um, Orson Welles' mom, the young uh, Charles Foster Kane, the Citizen Kane, and in Magnificent Amberson, she plays an aunt. But do you know what familial role I saw her in that was quite puzzling to me? Oh, which one? Well, I just watched her in the Stratton story. And get this, she plays Jimmy Stewart's mom. So that seems odd. <laughs> yeah, she would have had to have given birth to young little baby James when she was eight years old. So quite a feat indeed. Yeah, that seems really just not appropriate casting. <laughs> she was great in it, though. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Is that about is that a baseball story? It is, yes. Okay, because I remember, I don't know, it seems to constantly show up on the TCM app right now. Like, they take it down, and then it's like two weeks later, it comes back up. And I guess it's because it's summertime, so they keep putting, like, baseball movies on. But I haven't watched it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I have so many movies of Agnes's to catch up on. I didn't realize, well, one, that she didn't really get into acting till much later in life. But even passing away at 73 years old, she managed to make 113 credits, whether it be in TV or film, which just is so impressive to me because, like I said, she didn't even get into acting till she was 40 years old. Now, she did, like, radio programming, but it wasn't really... Her first film role was actually Citizen Kane, which is just crazy to me. Yeah. But speaking of, you know, her getting started in radio, I really want to dig up some of those because I believe I've told you I've been listening to a lot of old radio programs really since I uncovered the corpse of Arch Obler, and I just really enjoy them. Uh, especially because they tend to be in the genre of suspense or thriller type stories. So I really enjoy those. Mm -hmm. But do you know how Agnes died? Because I'm not really sure. Well, yeah, unfortunately, Agnes died of uterine cancer on April 30th, 1974. She was 73 years old. 
And one thing that I read that I found was quite interesting is it's believed she may have developed cancer from the radioactive fallout from atmospheric atomic bomb tests while she was making the movie The Conqueror with John Wayne in St. George, Utah. Oh, wow. Yeah, as if we didn't have enough reason not to watch that movie because it's <laughs> awful and should never have been made. But yeah, that was a big side effect for the folks working on that picture. Quite sad. Yeah, so I know nothing about that movie, but I will say I don't really have an interest in watching it because I don't really care for John Wayne pictures. Well, let me tell you, if you don't care for John Wayne pictures, I don't think you'll care for John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll skip that one. And also, yeah, that really sucks about the cancer mm -hmm. part. Cancer just yep. sucks. But what do you say that we slice her open and talk a bit more about one of her only starring roles, which was the 1959 flick, The Bat, which I'm uncovering today on Cinematic Crypt? Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, she was eccentric. Number two, she was a versatile, colorful chameleon. Number three, her seductive accent. Weren't you your husband's secretary, Dale? Yes, I was. Do you take shorthand? Mm-hmm. Well, my dear, if you'd like to have your mind occupied, I want you to work with me while I write the story of this fantastic criminal, the bat. Number four, her regal beauty. And number five, her mesmerizing features. When you mentioned colorful, I immediately thought of her hair because the few movies and of course seeing her in Bewitched, I've always loved her hairstyles. And I had read that friends of Agnes would often refer to her as the lavender lady because her wardrobe was usually accented with purple hues. So I guess like even in real life, she still had style and it wasn't just from her movies. And I always felt like some of her looks were absolutely wild, especially on Bewitched. Some of them would be extremely outlandish. I felt even in the bat, there were some great outfits that were on display. Yeah, I found that her looks were always fun and she had this beautiful, long, long red hair. And we see actually in the movie, even though it's black and white, we see how long it was and that she would braid it and pin it up into a bun. And that's something that my, I remember my great grandmother doing. And actually Agnes Moorhead reminds me a lot of her. Oh really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I, I love her red hair. I think it's fabulous. And as much as I do love black and white movies, I kind of wish that we could have seen the vibrant vibrancy of her hair. But regardless, I do love how her character, which she plays this mystery writer in The Bat, utilizes so much of her knowledge from like writing her books to help solve the crime. She's really clever in this movie. Yeah, her character in The Bat was so great. And it kind of reminded me of like a Jessica Fletcher thing from Murder, She Wrote. And that is a great goal. I wish that I had the drive to attempt to write a mystery, 
But yeah, I thought her character was great. She was kind of no nonsense, very confident, and she just made me laugh. Like my favorite scene is her reaction when they they find that there's the clock is kind of in the wrong spot, and they open the secret passage, and they find a corpse. Yes. And the other girls, you know, lose it as you would expect from opening a door to a corpse. But she kind of just puts her hand to her face, like just gently, as if she just noticed that she's running low on tea bags and needs to pick up some more. <laughs> yes. And she also seemed to be very intrigued with the secret passageway, discovering like, oh, there's secret passageways in this house. That was much more of interest than the corpse. Yeah, exactly. Like, what else can I do with this secret passage? I loved it. Yes. My friend actually described this movie as a Scooby-Doo mystery without Scooby-Doo and without the meddling kids. And I think that is a perfect description for this movie. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that description. It is perfect. And I also do love Scooby-Doo. Me too. So dissecting, you know, this corpse has definitely added many movies to my watch list. Like I said, I, and I agree with you. You should never feel bad about not watching something because there's just so much out there to watch and uh -huh. see. And I still do have much catching up to do with Orson in particular. But that also makes me kind of excited because I know that I have so many gems waiting. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, I'm far from being tucked in, so I'll have time to catch up. Yeah, definitely. As for Agnes, are we ready to grab the blankie? Well, I have one last note. Okay. And it's regarding coffins. Oh. So one year... After starring in The Bat, Agnes was in the movie Pollyanna. Have you seen that? I have not. Okay, so in this movie, she plays this like super grouchy woman in the neighborhood, Mrs. Snow, and she's a, a hypochondriac and she's everything is wrong with the world, everything is wrong with her, just totally miserable. She's very entertaining. So in it, there's a scene where she is picking the lining for her coffin. Oh. As she's perfectly fine. But I thought, what a very wise thing to take care of. What did she inevitably pick? Like, what type of lining? Well, in the movie, she preferred satin. So I suggest oh. we grab the finest satin sheet we have to tuck her in. Oh, that is perfect. I'm so glad that you looked into that. Certainly. Well, good night, Agnes. Good night. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the trip to the morgue. We return to our story of the bat. We left off with a corpse at our feet, if you recall, which has brought Detective Anderson and Dr. Wells, who just so happens to be the local coroner, back on the scene, ready to investigate the murder. The detective hones in on a new character at the home, Cornelia's chauffeur-turned-butler, Warren, and starts firing questions at him. 
He tells the ladies to lock themselves in their rooms for the rest of the night. Mr. Anderson will stay and watch over them and protect them from the bat. What about a police guard for this house tonight, Lieutenant? You've got one. I'm going to cover this place tonight from the attic to the basement. If the bat makes another call, I'll have a little surprise for him. Who, uh, who is he? Have you any idea? He could be anybody. So far, there are clues to his identity, but nothing we could take before a jury. I'm afraid we must look higher than the criminal world. He may be a merchant, lawyer, doctor, scientist. One of the pillars of his community. Ladies, lock your doors tonight. Stay behind them. I promise you, you'll be safe. Good night. Good night, Lieutenant. The ladies tuck in for the evening, but the bat is back and cuts the phone line. Now, even the phone is dead. Something to note, goblins and ghouls, if you haven't caught on already, it is that this movie is a really fun watch, and I think would be particularly a great flick to view with a group of film pals. Also, the sound design is really rad. What's surprising, though, is that no matter how loud the bat is, Lizzie doesn't seem to notice. The bat is clearly searching for the family tomb, trying to find the money, using the stolen blueprints, which has led him to an upstairs room on the third floor where he is hammering away at one of the walls. Where's the police, you might wonder? Well, outside investigating. That's right, completely useless. So Dale and Judy, the lady guests of Cornelia, decide to investigate on their own. Unfortunately, the bat kills Judy and scampers off, just as Detective Anderson walks through the door with a bag of excuses. Of course, he goes back to making accusations at the butler, informing the ladies that the butler had a previous run-in with the law for robbery. The butler informs them he was acquitted. As the plot thickens, you're left wondering, well, who is the bat? Which, again, makes this film so damn fun to watch. The mayhem never stops. As Dr. Wells comes back to the house informing the lot of his nearby accident, which I guess is perfect timing, as there is another corpse to pick up. Well, Doctor, we have another case for the county coroner. You see, the bat came back. Why did you come back, Doctor? Well, I I had an accident uh, about a mile down the road. The right rear wheel of my car came off and I plunged into the ditch. This was the nearest house, so I came here to call for help. I thought I'd find you around, Andy. Cornelia has had enough of the cops and their antics. She decides to start investigating on her own and goes up to the room in which the bat was making all the racket. She discovers yet another secret passageway behind the wall. This house is absolutely amazing. So many secret tunnels and places to hide. It's a dream. However, one has to be careful when they explore, as Cornelia accidentally locks herself in the secret room. While this is taking place, the bat drops in on Mr. Wells in his laboratory attempting to pin the entire crime on him. 
Another thing I loved about this flick is that you kind of spend a lot of time thinking Vincent Price is the bat. Because, well, of course, being known for his campy horror villains, it just seems like the logical choice. But this movie throws a great curveball at the audience. The bat leaves a letter at Dr. Wells' lab, stating, Here lies the bat. Threatened with exposure, he destroyed himself. All of this leads up to the unmasking of the bat, which, well, I'm not going to ruin that for you, my goblins and ghouls, for I feel you should experience this thrilling adventure yourself. But don't try it. No matter how clever you are, you can't hide murder. Well, that's it, Dale. That's the end. In a 1987 interview, Vincent Price revealed that the stage version of The Bat had terrified him so much as a child that he accepted the role in this film because he thought the filmmakers would revive it and bring it up to date. He was disappointed, though, with the final result, blaming the script. When the film was released in 1959, it did not go over well with audiences and critics, as people were kind of over period piece stories. Over time, though, it has found its following. I mean, sure, it is a bit hokey, but I really enjoyed it for its zaniness, and I think you might too. I leave you with this last tidbit of Vincent that I couldn't help but share. According to Mr. Price, when he and Peter Laurie went to view Bella Lugosi's body at his funeral, Laurie, upon seeing Lugosi dressed in his famous Dracula cape, quipped, Do you think we should drive a stake through his heart, just in case? Mwah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are interested in checking out The Bat, it is available for free on archive.org as it is another film that has found itself in the public domain. I will post a link on the Cinematic Crypt page. Just visit moviejohn.com and click on Cinematic Crypt under MJ Pods. I don't own this movie but I predict it will find its way into the Leonard family video library sometime in the near future. In my next episode, I will pry open the coffin of Carol Landis to dissect and examine the 1941 noir film, I Wake Up Screaming. Much like a previous corpse of interest, Robert Walker, in episode 17, Carol was taken far too soon, dying at the age of 29. Join us as we will once again take another trip to the morgue, where we shall be joined by my film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy the character corpse, Elisha Cook Jr. Hope you tune in. Until then, Please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. So take note, fellow crypt dwellers, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! Log into iTunes to leave your own review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. 
drop your favorite little grave digger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, we just completed our summer issue, which will feature films that focus on circuses, carnivals, and state fairs. It's sure to be great, and you don't want to miss out. So make sure to subscribe at moviejohn.com shop. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad cinematic crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, the red herring, Ryan Silverstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you're wondering where to start in noir watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw it in a Movie or email at dear I Saw it in a Movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. You can also send gifts to your favorite little gravedigger there. Mwah. All of this information is available on our website, moviejohn, and that's J-A-W-N dot com, under MJ Pods. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. I was all right for a while. I could smile. For a while But I saw you last night You held my hand so tight As you stopped to say hello Oh, you wish me well You couldn't tell That I've been crying Over you It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Cornelia Van Gorder. No matter how clever you are, you can't hide murder. A reminder to all visitors of my grave, no matter how appealing it sounds, there's no such thing as the perfect murder, and you won't get away with it. Or will you? Goodbye, film pals.
Is scrubbing mildew making your shower a chamber of horrors? Spray on Tylex Instant Mildew Stain Remover and mildew stains vanish with no scrubbing. Try Tylex and escape the torture of scrubbing.